Hi, and welcome to Contracast. My name is Kat Boyd. I'm joined with two lovely individuals today. My co-host, David Jameson, and our guest today, Darren McGarvey. Hi, both. Hello. It's all going fine. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Darren. I'm very grateful to be here. It's lovely to see you both. How's your lockdown been? It's been spiritual. <laughs> uh, it's good. I mean, it, you, you just get used to it. It's, it's amazing how the human capacity to acclimate to circumstances which would previously have horrified you. Um, so obviously, like everyone, it's up, up and down, but a lot of the things that were really jarring in the beginning are kind of part of the daily routine now and almost imperceptible. So I, um, it's been a big learning curve. Actually has led to a period of creativity, which uh, in the beginning of this, I would have thought was impossible. Uh, just like learning to accept what the limitations are and then finding new ways to, to work and think and write within that. So I would say all in all, it's been a positive one, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not absolutely uh, skint. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not in a household that's dealing with dysfunction. I'm not, you know, maybe if this had happened 15 years ago, I would, would be <laughs> giving you quite a different answer. <laughs> Uh, so I'm aware I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, Darren, your insight, your, your tweets have given me an insight into uh, um, the difference between being in the situation I'm in and the situation cats in and the difference between that and having kids in lockdown, mm. which to me is kind of unimaginable. I don't, I don't know how I'd, uh, I'd do that lockdown with kids. Uh, I mean, is that a huge difference, do you reckon? Yes, it is, uh, particularly kids that are uh, as young as, as my two. My son's fifth Aye. birthday today, and uh, my daughter is two. She'll be three in a couple of weeks. So they are, um, you know, in many ways, very straightforward in terms of what their needs are. Um, but also they have unlimited energy, um, which needs to be uh, burned, you know, Mm. And uh, when you are uh, when you don't have the support of childcare or you have minimal support, if you've got a support bubble sometimes, which we do, then uh, you I, I often feel I'm not meeting all of their needs in a way that I would like to, mm. um, which is difficult. But it just watching Tangled on Disney Plus for the ten thousandth time just gets a bit stale. <laughs> I mean, and so the, the TV becomes the TV sometimes becomes a bit of a, a a babysitter for them, in order that we can work or get a bit of dare I say it respite. Um, but hopefully they'll be they'll be too young to to recall um, some of the harder days that we've had in lockdown, and it'll just instead ripple out into their growing personalities and shape them going forward. But they won't personally attribute it to my terrible parenting there's a real like samuel beckett-esque feel to your tweets about juice yeah <laughs> and you see how i try to braid unconventional things together <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's it's just because you know these for me become the, the real obstacles in my life 
or how I, uh, my emotional temperament towards extremely simple things. So in a sense, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm sort of mocking myself with those tweets that I would get so, like I have actually shed tears at 5.30 a.m. because I've got up early specifically to capture those first few quiet moments and I'm just being terrorised by a cat that I didn't want, you know, and I'm so <laughs> filled with resentment about this life form and how little it contributes. Um, that 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 I, I I can feel intensely sorry for myself in those moments, and I think having the ability to share something that absurd on Twitter, it's it's funny. It gives me that false sense of connection to something outside the house, and then also I can just see the absurdity uh, of what I'm saying in it. So I, it's 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 mad the things that can send you over the edge. A fridge that beeps, you know, fridges that are so sophisticated that they. They beep if they're left open for too long, but not sophisticated enough that the door just closes properly when you shut it over. Um, that's lockdown life. Analogy for the human condition right there. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, my lockdown has been, I mean, it's just, it's dead quiet. Like, I rem I'm sure we talked about this before, Darren, like, that... You, it's whatever is around you all the time isn't it do you know what I mean like I there's part of me that's envious of like houses that are filled with people and like you know people spend lots of time with their family like having kids as an entertainment and distraction but I know that other people who are in that situation are looking at mine being like just give me the quiet yeah. <laughs> just give I've, me I've the I know, I've, I've, there've been times where I've just I've just been looking behind you, you know, when you've been on the screen, and I've just been thinking, oh, is that is that right, cat? I having a having a hard time trying to kind of crawl crawl into the TVs, you know what I mean, just to lie on a couch and not be bitten or shat on or whatever. Um. So we are going to talk a bit about your new show that's out. Um. But we've had it's been quite a it's quite a funky week in Scottish politics because you've had we've had Alex Salmon's evidence session in the Parliament. Did, did you watch it? I did. I I did actually. I mean, you need to be a real nerd to watch six hours of that, but I, I did indeed. And uh, yeah, out did. on it, yeah. Yeah, I watched it. I was, uh, you know, it was towards the end of the day when my wife came down from working upstairs and started talking over it all that I realised two things. One, it was a total waste of time waiting to the climax, which I subsequently didn't get to see uh, because of those uh, marital conversations. And also, two, there was very little interest in it. And what was going on uh, <laughs> from from the broader population? I'm not saying that that, that 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 that's indicative of anything specific. There are obviously very serious issues around there on a multitude of areas. But um, I did come away from it thinking I really just wasted a lot of time there. No, but see, for me, this is like um, I don't know why, but I find it really comforting, right, to listen to hours of procedural legalistic chat i same i sometimes watch um you know american depositions mm. if you go on youtube you'll find that there's a lot of depositions right? <laughs> with people giving hours and hours and hours of evidence and haggling over tiny legal details mm. which is why i like it 
I have no idea why. I don't know if this is like, you get this weird thing on YouTube of like ASMR or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people yeah, are really yeah. into like listening to obscure stuff. I don't know if it's connected to that, but no, I love all that. No, like, that Matt, it might actually be a type of ASMR. <laughs> like my, my ASMR is, I mean, it's dead specific. It's, um, it's called it's called like golden oldies playing in another room. Yeah. <laughs> Are you nodding that? That, that, yeah. that is a very strange fetish, by the way. Golden it's oldies. Like, it's floor. like it's just like old um movie sounds. Yeah. Like they're played at a distance and it's got like a road and fire. I mean it's delicious. Yeah, I've got I've I've um I came a point where I had to explain to Becky what it was that was coming up on my YouTube recommendations because some of them might give the appearance of being like a sexual fetish or something like that. <laughs> but the, uh, there's all sorts of crazy ones that I quite enjoyed, like uh, the there's, there's ones that's like pampering. So it's like, yeah. it's just a woman coming in, like fixing your hair and cutting your hair, but it's the noise of the scissors and the noise of our hands on the different materials. And I actually get that when I'm getting a haircut sometimes. See, like when you're in the, at a certain time of the day when you're kind of starting maybe get a wee bit, like you might nap if you had the opportunity. That's when it's really heightened. But what you're saying, David, about the depositions and all that, um, I think that part of that is 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 one. There's a sort of there's a there's a kind of interest in the subject itself, the language, which is kind of like music in a sense, because um, that sort of language has a kind of rhythm to it. But also, it's that sense that there are people around because we have this deep connection this deep instinct to feel close to other people i think that's why like we like to go for coffee in a place where there are other people even when we're on our own that's why we don't drink coffee by ourselves in our house we would go to a coffee shop and yesterday i took it to an extreme where i was watching uh, a five-hour interview by a psychiatrist of james holmes in prison this is the guy who shoot, murdered 12 people in a mass shooting in America. And he's just being asked very frank questions about, you know, why did he do this? And this guy is just was on record as just having the most severe mental health issues for the longest time. And he's just sitting there like that, you know, like just answering so matter-of-factly about what he did. There's just something transfixing about it. But then also induces sleep. <laughs> it's just... Oh, comfort, the comforting mass murderer let's get head on the pillow you know yeah it's, it's quite odd that we're seeking out these people for company um, yeah out of pandemic loneliness mm. um but yeah i mean i i suppose on a kind of broader political level like you got a lot of people saying and i suppose it's a bit crass oh here he's back you know he's he's a titan of scottish politics he's so much better than all the people who are asking him questions and so on like but I mean, on, on one level, that is true. Like it is clear that, that there's very little political talent in the parliament. Um, on the other hand, it's just sort of. I think I think that Salmon's Salmon's evidence was at the point in which people realised this was real because you had loads of people saying like, "No one's going to notice this is going on," uh, so therefore it kind of doesn't matter. Like between this and Sturgeon on Wednesday. Um, I think there's no way for people to continue avoiding what's going on. And I expect the same thing with Sturgeon. I expect loads of kind of fanboys to be saying, for what an amazing performance, you know, and all this kind of stuff. 
everyone seems to have forgotten this is all totally inappropriate to <laughs> the matter being discussed. Yeah, I think one of the things that worked for Salmon was his performative humility, which is a big attractive quality. Um, if you be- if you believe it's real, it isn't obviously with him. We all know why he's there. But that presentation, I think, um, in, in the first instance, endeared people to him. But then there are all the ulterior motives that everyone who's watching it has in terms of how they want all this to come out, um, whether it be, you know, Sturgeon supporters or whether it be all the top radio hosts in England now all hailing Salmon as some kind of uh, heavyweight, which is what you, you would never have expected to have seen those kind of bedfellows. But for me, it was also um, Salmon's given this a very specific type of framing, which is very reminiscent of how Sheridan framed things uh, many years ago uh, with the SSP and the, the, the break breakdown of that. And and it, and it only takes hearing another framing to recontextualise a lot of the stuff. So what he's done is he's drawn a line between so many different things and made it all seem like there's one intention that's underpinned every single action. Um, and that's very compelling. And I think our, our, our inclination towards narrative and stuff like that makes that all, all the more kind of transfixing. But I think Sturgeon, she's a bit more naturally humble than him. I think she's also a bit more cautious than him. And and also I think she's, she's probably a bit more honest than him. And that's just going off of my experience of, of both of them. I think that, She's more likely to concede things and 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 put things across across in such a way that even where maybe she has done something wrong, people will sympathise with her more. Um, so I, I'll, I'll be interested to see how it, how it goes. I don't know if I'm going to give up a whole afternoon to it though. I mean, I think that there's two things going on. That 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 point that you're making, Darren, about the people are framing that like so Salmond or Sheridan or Sturgeon or whatever characters are involved are framing that story in a very particular way so underlying it is a conspiracy so then everything is seen in that light I mean ultimately conspiracy theories are about they, they are by their nature narcissistic like in every sense and I don't necessarily mean like just in the Salmon case or in the Sheridan case or uh, in Watergate or whatever political kind of traditional political scandals but also across all politics at the moment so all see that conspiracy theory about um, Russian money in politics Mm. Like that's a narcissistic narrative told by the middle class about why they have failed to win the things that they think that they have an entitlement to. Do you know what I mean? So I think a lot of the stuff about conspiracy can be quite narcissistic. Um, I mean, at least in some ways, these accusations of conspiracy are more tangible than the the ones of the early 2000s. Um, But the other thing I think that's going on here is the way that there's an increased pressure within the media to report the goodies versus baddies. Like as if it's as if we're watching a film, as if yeah. they're the Wrestling. goodies and they're the baddies, yeah. and that's basically how everything needs to be seen now. And that's just not real life. Like as we know, 
people are good and they are bad and they are complex and they have good sides and they have bad sides and they've done good things and done bad things yeah like that's the reality of any situation so I, 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 there's two i just think that no i just think that they are two like very kind of modern things that are happening out with this particular drama and scottish politics that are actually replicated yeah. over a number of years yeah, and other fields. Definitely. And I think that the most effective theories are the ones that persist and, and, and gain a great deal of purchase are the ones that, while ha containing obvious nonsense, also contain kernels of truth. You know, so that this is how Farage or Tommy Robinson or Kate Hopkins, they snare sections of the population um because they, they they'll, they'll begin by saying things that feel intuitively correct like our community your community's run down uh you don't have jobs the situation with housing is terrible your local authority is corrupt da, 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 da. and then once people are endeared to those things they smuggle in all the nonsense you know all the islamophobia comes in and uh, all of the other things that come in and i think that's a that's a tactic that's a strategy whatever the conspiracy happens to yeah. be but there's always a kernel of truth in there that around which all the myth is, is then situated. Totally, totally. I think that me and David have said this many times on this podcast. Um, more than one thing can be true at once. And I, I mean, I, this is my supposition because we we don't, none of us know the truth, you know, from all the evidence we've presented and we're still to hear more evidence. But my strong suspicion is that there's an element of all that in this situation. Alex Salmon has already admitted that he was badly behaved his lawyer in an offhand moment said more than that. Um, but it's also likely the case because we know because of the ways in which the Scottish government has consistently resisted providing evidence on how the process was dealt with, um, that they have something to hide and how they responded to the challenge thus presented. But that's, that's the way the world works. Like, I know this is a really hackneyed thing to say about getting older, but as, as we all drift into middle-aged, I've kind of stopped believing that in these affairs there's, there's uh, a, yeah, like a goody side and a baddie side. What you have it is an extremely messy reality mm -hmm. in which various actors have done various good and bad things and they're all trying to cover their tracks mm -hmm. and they're all trying to, to end up on top in the situation. But that's you can't sell that message to a wider <laughs> public because yeah. no yeah. one wants to hear it. Um, I mean, I was I was looking at um, uh, because he publishes in the, the stats for the blog Wings Over Scotland, and he, I think he's got he claims in February he had six million page views, which when you consider the size of the Scottish population, that's a mad take. But you couldn't establish that on that kind of audience on the basis, and this worries me. You can, it's very difficult to establish an audience on the basis of saying they've probably both fucked up. Right, because who wants to hear that? <laughs> no one, no one in the independence movement no. certainly wants to hear that. The reason people don't um, want to hear it is because it's terrifying. See, when it's like, oh, everybody fucked up, it's like, well, who's in charge here? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's like an sense of, um, and like when Daddy and you were talking about those talk radio hosts, um, in England who think that Salmon's this intellectual heavyweight, it makes me think of, do you know that film Il Divo? No, no. It's it's an Italian film um, about the Andreotti, who is the the president. There's this amazing scene in it, where um, his comrades are saying to him like, 
oh, you should stand, you should stand for president. Like, and he, he gets up and he says, mm, I know I'm an average man, but I don't see any giants around here. And like, see, when I was watching that committee, I was thinking of that. Cause I'm like, this is actually right. There's the, sca- there's, there's the scandal and what's happening on one side. And then on the other, there's co- probably quite a lot of people looking at the state of that committee and the caliber of some of the contributions that have been made on it and laughing at our parliament. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that the, the, the kernel of truth within Salmon's testimony for me is his insinuation about um, the problems of, of governance, but not, not this kind of doomsday narrative that many have seen, seen seized on this idea of it being a one party state or, institutions being corrupt to the core, but more the malaise that sets in the longer one party is in power. Um, Because for me, the two deeper lessons of this, and no one really wants to ever analyze the deeper lessons, it's always politics. But for me, the two big lessons in this in life are, one, power corrupts, it corrupts incrementally and so subtly that even a person with good intentions having become accustomed to the intoxicating effects of being perceived as powerful is going to be corrupted by it. And this is evidence in both Sam and Dan Sturgeon's uh, actions at different points. Um, but also the deeper thing is in life, we really never know how a decision we make in a moment or a reaction that we have in a moment is going to ripple out across our life and across the lives of others. Because obviously we, we're not all on TV being subjected to this level of scrutiny, but we all have lives that are messy, that, 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 such as the way it's been paraded on TV. And so it's just, it made me kind of mindful. It just brought into my awareness. It's like, you know, in, in, in a moment of madness or a moment of passion or a moment of whatever the moment might be, right? Defensiveness, uh, pig-headedness. You could plant a seed which is going to create so much <laughs> further in your life. And you in that moment have no idea about it, you know? And that, that for me is quite sobering, horrifying, humbling. Um, but of course, the commentary I don't want to discuss uh, the, the, this in, in those kind of terms. It's all about the partisanship. It's all about, you know, it, it's interesting as well how invested certain commentators have become in one version of this coming out. Um, and I think there's a lot of audience capture going on. You know, some some commentators have, have been captured by audiences who now expect them to churn out the same take on the same issues every time. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's fascinating because it's, it's culture war again, isn't it, really, underneath all of this? There are resentments about different politics, different policies, and they're all finding expression in the SNP through this battle between uh, Salmond and Sturgeon. I mean, the irony being that there's no... Sorry, David, on you go. I was just going to say exactly what you're saying. It's like the the, the, the narrow world, the differences, the more viciousness there is. Like, you know, it's that narcissism of small differences thing. The Salmondite and Sturgeonite wing of the SNP are millimetres from each other politically. And you can say... But there's, there's cultural differences there. But the cultural differences are so eth- ethereal. You, both sides claim yeah. to be feminists in the most like aggressive terms. And 
one way or another, they're both missing aspects of this. It's totally inappropriate to have, I mean, the day that Salmon gave evidence, there were tens of thousands of likes and retweets for tweets that said, I stand with Sturgeon. But she's uninvestigated for fucking up the parliament's response to allegations of sexual harassment. Mm. How can anyone think that that's an appropriate or feminist response to this mm. particular juncture? But you know, on the other side, you have uh, you have all this stuff going on as well. And it's just like, yeah, they, sh- they both make identical political claims for who they are. We're liberals, we're the feminists, we're the Democrats. We're the ones who represent these virtuous political attitudes and politics. Um, <laughs> under the slightest pressure, it all goes right out the window and they're just yeah. having at each other in the most unprincipled way. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Like That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, politically, there's hardly any difference between these two sides, like these goodies and baddies, which is why they're so interchangeable, depending on which kind of perspective you take on it. Um, yeah. Oh, very. I mean, we've been going on for a while now um, about the splits in the SNP and how they are. They tend to be questions of tactics or like a specific factionalism and base building within the organization or a question of optics. Like, I know people hate talking about political optics, but it's, it's style. Like, isn't it? Because, like, ideologically, there's barely any difference between Alex Salmond and Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, of course, they were once the the team. They were once the duo. Like, you would never see them, like, without each other on the campaign trail when it came to really high-profile things. Um, Yeah. Um, We should probably move on to social class. Yeah, we've been talking about this for forever. Uh, speaking of the narcissism of small differences yeah um, speaking of culture speaking of the culture war yeah yeah it's, it's just more interesting than class sorry um no 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 tell us about um see see the program that you're making at, at the, that has been coming out and the last one's coming out we're filming Today? this on tonight is yeah. this, is this tonight crazy? isn't it um so it's got the, the last one's coming out tonight is this is this based on the same material that your book uh, is based on yes similarly it's similar but some of the some of the stuff in the book has come out of things we did in the show and some of the stuff in the show in particular the broad grab bag of cultural uh lenses through which to construe class language um, being a big, big signifier and also a big dividing line in terms of power dynamics and things like that. So there's a lot of interplay between the book and the show. The, the, the book is more, more broader in terms of um, the, the UK generally. So, you know, I visit Margate, uh, go to the House of Commons. I've got a chapter about the London Underground and how it was quite a radical idea that a lot of people poo-pooed in the beginning. Um, including Times Opinion columnists, you know, just this will never work, it's rat infested sewers, and what is this madness? And then it became the real engine room of, of British industrialization. And um, so the, the book's a lot broader, uh, and also the book's a lot more political, um, like partly political, overtly political. Uh, it, it has, um, you know, the, the first part of the book outlines the basic concepts of. Uh, class, class interest, class conflicts, 
um, and 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 makes the argument that the, the, these these are real and they're realer than meritocracy. They're realer than the concept of social mobility, and that we need to use this language again. Then it goes into the theme of proximity, which is you know looms large over everything just now because of social distancing. But that's when I start to draw the metaphor between class differences and social distances at that understanding and this concept of social distancing as it's understood now so proximity you know that this 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 situation where we have people who have absolutely no experience of what life is like for a lot of people in this country being thrown into jobs that they're not trained for and then we expect something other than social economic mayhem to occur but then as the, the, then as the book progresses uh, towards the end, the last three chapters, it's, it's, it's an, an, an analysis of where class inequality and proximity or low proximity have, have harmed working class people or the poor or vulnerable uh, through each of the political uh, positions, the three main political positions. So it begins with conservatism and this hostility doctrine that we've seen, which is based on kind of public school, tough love, uh, which is very much a, 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 seems to be a way of life that works for people in communities where they have something to conserve. But when you're dealing with people whose biggest problem in life is chronic stress and all of the emotional problems that come from that, creating a society that incentivizes them to behave better by frightening them, it's not a very emotionally sophisticated way to behave. Then you look at the left, I mean, my, 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 my problems with the left are well known for anyone who's been paying attention to what I say. So that looks at social media, the, the interplay between identity politics and all that stuff. Um, the role that a lot, a lot of intellectuals play and how activists are always waiting for the next intellectual download and don't trust their instincts a lot of the time. And, 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 and sometimes we leave it too long before we come up with a coherent response to something like identity politics and immigration, because we're waiting on what the, the academics think. And, uh, and, and so I argue against that. And in the final books about the, the center ground, you know what I mean? But th none of that stuff is in the show because obviously uh, you don't want, it can't be politicized in that way. But what, what we do have in the show is what I think and what, I, what we aim to do, what I certainly aim to do was to reintroduce the language of class back into the, the mainstream discourse in Scotland by using my, my position in media at the minute to, to, to try and continue that work that I've been doing um, in terms of making people understand that, that uh, you need the language of class to describe what's going on. And without that language, you can't describe what's going on. And if, if your house burnt down and you weren't allowed to use the word fire to describe what tore through the structure, then you would have a lot of problems in terms of identifying aspects of reality, which are quite important. So the show's been getting well received. It's, um, I'm aware as well that a lot of the stuff I do gets taught in schools and colleges and universities. So while it might not win the BAFTA, it'll be diffused through educational institutions. And, and so hopefully young people will start to uh, continue on the journey they seem to be on where this language of class is re-emerging again. What do you think the, the status of the, of, the, of the concept of class where it's at at the moment? I mean, my, my general feeling is that there has been an, an uptick in discussion of social class since about 2008. Uh, and the financial crisis and then austerity and all that. Um, but 
it's still to me it's it's very obviously the social divides that you know don't say its name really so if you look at our own institutions in scotland no one would ever bat an eyelid if in the scottish parliament legislation was passed calling for the equality between men and women equality between straight people in the lgbt community equality between the races and and so on right the races you know what i mean egalitarianism equalities equalities as a kind of general outlook on the world um any politician who tried to pass legislation in a parliament anywhere in the world calling for equality between the social classes would be a, made a laughing stock in the press um, in fact, that, that idea of equality between the social classes seems to have disappeared. I mean, there was a time when it was quite structural to Western politics that someone somewhere would be demanding the abolition of social class. Uh, and it's simply not done anymore. No one thinks today um, that a cleaner and Jeff Bezos should have their living conditions equalised. And there's no call for it. And it's not seen as a point of contention. I mean, that, that to me seems like a, a really profound political change in the last few decades. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Um, but I think where I'm sitting on this is I'm trying to bring the language of class in with an awareness of how particularly the right um, have, have, have tried to discard that and thus it's created big confusion within the population about what class is and what it entails. So I'm not necessarily coming with all of the other analysis of material conditions and uh, the relationship to the means of production. It's almost like a kind of, it's almost like a kind of starter course or a beginner course, simply in what is social class as a concept in terms of how it relates to what's going on now? So we look at things like the exam algorithm and certainly what the exam algorithm scandal shows us is that the education system's integrity is derived from the inequalities it produces. And so the inequality was assured by the algorithm, which is what authenticates our education system. So that's a way that you can get into class without invoking or evoking a lot of the other baggage that comes with it, you know, in terms of the aspects of it, which I think are, are, are certainly historically contestable in terms of Thatcher's dismantling of the trade unions and the subsequent image of trade unionism, which came out of that, um, um, rather than trade unions being a natural evolution of uh, guaranteeing working class rights. And when you remove trade unions, you have growing inequality. We get into trade unionism, we don't go into all the history of it, but it's because I'm I'm always I'm always thinking about the people in the community who are not necessarily completely schooled up on everything that a lot of other people who are political geeks take for granted. So it's, sometimes it's about bringing in uh, concepts that are relatable, things that are not too politicised, but then also by doing that, what you can do is, you, you know, you can... You can you, you, you make an argument in an emotionally intelligent way. So you, you have a couple of sequences where you know you're being quite open and you're being quite magnanimous, but then you throw in the stuff about the army and recruitment and conscription, or you throw in the stuff about Thatcherism 
and the poll tax and that stuff in terms of BBC Scotland is is uh, it's not a natural home for <laughs> for for that sort of stuff. So for me, it's like you've you've got you've got to look at it um, in a way that's uh, conducive to making the sort of subject interesting, and then people are free to explore at a level of depth that they feel is suitable to them. Um, I mean, I think that that's a. So, I mean, your series has a really noble aim, like this idea of you know reintroducing the language of class back into the mainstream. I I think that that there was a, a kind of a bit of an upturn in discussions about class during the referendum, for example. Mm. And I don't mean that just like pro-independence leftists like myself talking about social class. I also mean that there was a lot of pieces written at the time about the kind of like the scourge of this backwards nationalist working class element in certain communities as well. And I think you can see that playing out today with the, there's an almost sneering aspect in the mainstream media in Scotland towards the kind of all under one banner, the marches, yeah, that that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. There's a real like, oh, they're treated like hairy arse nationalists or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like unreconstructed. Um, so I think there was an upturn in discussions about class, but I also, I do think that there's a quite a strong Scottish tradition of talking about class in a really mainstream way. I mean, I struggle to think of pieces of modern Scottish literature that aren't about class in some way. Maybe apart yeah, yeah. from like Muriel Spark, yeah. like in the Prime of Mystery Brodie, which maybe is about, you can stretch it, right? Yeah. But like all kind of like major Scottish novels, plays, like that sort of thing, they have this driving factor about like class and our kind of the class's collective sensibilities, if you like. Yeah. The problem, the problem is that that ends, the that ends at the door of the poverty conference, that ends at the door of the institution. So our institutions are filled by people who could quote verbatim passages of all of these books that are fundamentally about class inequalities. But then, when it's time to actually talk about it, they they resort to this vacuous language of social mobility, uh, of meritocracy, and all of the assumptions that sort of all of the assumptions they internalized through the period of Blairism, where you had this, um, you had this, uh, these two defining cultural prongs to it. One was the negative portrayals of working class people um, as, 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 as to blame for their own poverty, whether it be Jeremy Kyle or the way Anne Robinson spoke to them or reality television. And then you had the rise of a paternalistic middle class, which would compel them to embark on journeys of self-improvement, but would deal with them in such a way that, that, that they were really just informed by the media shift and how working class people were portrayed. So it meant that your social mobility became contingent on someone who went to university rubber stamping you effect effectively, whether that be in a job centre or whether that be um, an education or whatever. What I'm interested in doing is compelling the people who don't want to use the language of class, that they have to start using it. And in Scotland, that's quite a realistic aim because it is quite a small country. And yeah. there, is, there is a sort of everybody knows somebody and you can kind of reach out and touch power in this country in a way that I don't think you can down south. Um. No, no, I, I mean, I get that. I think <laughs> I was sort of, I was laughing when you were um, suggesting that the kind of that, you know, um, 
third sector poverty do-gooder industrial complex would be able to quote passages from great Scottish literature about class. <laughs> like I'm I'm not sure of that, right? And I'll I'll tell you my theory, right? So buckle up. This is a Connor Cast Catboyd theory special coming up. So see in your show where you talk about like how the the middle class are essentially they ape the upper class. So they kind of want to be like the upper class. So you have your the, the kind of the country estate and the croquet and all that shit right mm. I do agree with that and I do think that you are correct I think that there's an added dimension now which is that over the last 20 years the national dimension of that has been obliterated right mm -hmm. so partly to do with globalization partly to do with social media so the middle class in Scotland aren't necessarily trying to be like the upper class of Scotland, what they're trying to be is like the liberal elites of America, right? Yeah, so this yeah. would be like a kind of classic Sturgeonism. Mm. So the national dimension of the middle class wanting to be like the upper British kind of class, British upper class or Scottish upper class, they don't want to be, they want to be Hillary Clinton, they want to be East Coast intellectuals or coastal intellectuals. Mm. I mean, even the British aristocracy today it's quite mid-Atlantic, right? Look at all this stuff with Harry and Meghan. Do you know what I mean? Like, so the process of like cultural reproduction is still there, but it's just globalized now and cosmopolitan in a way that it wasn't really before. And yeah. I think the flip side's true as well. Like someone said to me that um, Downton Abbey was like, like, I don't know anybody who watches that, right? So apologies if there's any listeners who do watch it, but I've never heard of anybody watching that. But apparently it's not made for British audiences. It's made for American middle-class audiences who right, want right, to right, LARP right. the kind of the idea of an oldie-worldy British upper class. Yeah. No, that's, that, my, that's my theory. That, that, I think that's a good theory. I think that's a good theory. And obviously with that kind of coastal liberal outlook, is it's it's uh, it's very much braided up with the, the ideology of corporations, isn't it? It's like we see that with identity politics or at least... The, how it's been fast-tracked by capitalist institutions and liberal institutions and a lot of the radicalism that might have been actually contained and the postmodernism that was drawn from is completely um is is evaporated out of it yeah and it's just here's a rainbow flag on a cup and i'm sure that that has its uses and i'm sure things like i'm sure there are a lot of marginalized groups who feel included or there are a lot of issues which are now being discussed in the mainstream which weren't as a result of that so it's not a completely rub rubbish yet but it's, it's it's certainly what it's designed to do in part is to create the illusion that uh, vast social changes occurring uh, while, while the class inequalities are still being uh, preserved. I remember having like loads of quite spicy discussions with you about identity politics back in the day. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't, I get the sense that we've probably in each our own ways moved slightly closer together. Mm. Like I'm, I would, I'm I'm a feminist like I, I'm not not a feminist right but I do think that feminism as an ideology has lost its subversive potential like and I think that that's what matters to me about identity politics isn't so it, it's not just that like um, it's being co-opted I just think that there was a time where like being engaged in feminist movements and activity had really subversive potential to radicalize people against the status quo. Now I think that feminism helps to reproduce the status quo. All I mean, basically, my relationship with feminism 
started to become quite fractious. And when I realized that all roads were leading to Hillary Clinton, and mm. um, do you know what I mean? Like, and watching yeah. that unfold, like watching this Me Too movement where women had come forward, then be turned into a whole um, industry of women's pain being used to like, then be I'm with her and Hillary Clinton and isn't she wonderful? Kind of similar to some of the stuff around Joe Biden and Black Lives Matter. Do you know what I mean? Is that like all yeah. these roads on identity politics seem to lead to a reestablishment or a reforging of the status quo, which is yeah. makes them not, I don't know, like it's not really what I'm, I'm interested in. We spoke, we see, see, we when, it, see when it comes to like, sorry, go on, Dan. No, no, carry on, David, on you go. I was just going to say that um, when you look at uh, like the, this kind of like, you know, like the third sector and, and, and the way it talks about class and so on, I think they often want to reframe class as a version of identity politics, right? So the phrase you hear to these days is not so much social mobility as social inclusion, right? Which is a very strange way to look at social class in most mm. regards. So if you look at, say, uh, the Roma community in Scotland are socially excluded, right? That's quite obvious, right? And that has a long sort of cultural history and so on, right? Where they don't feel included in the institutions of the state and so on. And there was an effort to, 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 to make sure that um, their children were going to the GP and going to school. Like that, that's more traditional social exclusion. There's a fear in that community of, uh, of, of the kind of uh, the, the majority community, right? Or you could look at lots of uh, communities that have suffered social exclusion over the last 50 or 60 years. The, my my favourite bit in, uh, in your programme, Darren, is when you interviewed a woman who works in a call centre. And of course, she couldn't show her face, right? Because she's very likely to lose a job, be persecuted or whatever. And she was managed down to the minute and the second, you know, on how long she took for her lunch, whether or not she could go for a pest, right? Because she was being exploited at such an intensive level. And call centres are important for the Scottish economy. Like it's so often, it's so often like forgotten. There are more people working in call centers in the Clyde area today than ever worked in the shipyards. Yeah. And the rate of exploitation is intense, right? Mm. Union busting's intense. They're getting paid fuck all, right? That woman's problem is not social exclusion, right? She's too included, right? I mean, like, the, the, there's not the sense in that language that the working class are at the heart of the way our society reproduces itself by exploitation. Because that's a much more chilling thing for middle class people to admit to themselves. It's partly because two levels. One, they might be blind to it. Their interests are tied up in the preservation of it, whatever their ethical sense of it is. But then also there's, um, it's horrifying to admit that you're complicit you know whether actively or passively in such a thing and 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 admitting admitting that accepting that is about one admitting your analysis of society up to that moment of realization was fundamentally wrong and then two having to ask yourself the question well what else am i wrong about and these are things at a very fundamental level people don't want to do and it's interesting because obviously the analysis is always class interests and class conflicts and people retain this viewpoint because their interests are tagged up in it, but sometimes just at a human level, it's a real emotional, uh, it's emotional juvenilia. It's, 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 it's real inability just to contend with the truth because the truth is uncomfortable and, and, and being emotional and being economically insulated from having to 
uh, and and also you're you're then all of that delusion is 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 supplemented in in media and public discourse, which is created by and for you. So it's it's extremely frustrating. Um, we 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 that was one of the sequences when you talk about the call center ones. That's one of the ones that you know that that we we strategically place within an episode because we know that, that, that we, we understand the effect that it can have, you know, in terms of illuminating this issue, because that might be one of the only times that people who work in that sort of environment glimpse for a brief moment what they're actually taking part in, because class consciousness has been eroded to an extent where they don't even question why they're not allowed to have breaks together. You know, they don't realise that the, the, the strategy, the open plan floor and all that is to make them all look like they're part of a team, but they're not allowed to talk to each other. And they're all being bussed in from other, the managers are all being bussed in from other communities and the people on the floor, they don't have a rise to a managerial position. So that might be the only time they see that and go, hang on a minute, what am I, what's going on at my work, you know? No, uh, yeah, I just, I think that, I think that's really interesting and um, I think <laughs> it's easier in a way to just spend this entire period just slagging off the Scottish middle class uh, because it's <laughs> the pretensions are more hilarious um, but you also said in the in the program that like this is part of that you've found this like you're obviously in now this kind of D class A position where you've come from a working class background but you now work as as a writer as a published author, as someone who makes programs for the BBC. Mm. Um, I mean, what, how, how do you reflect on that experience? And do you worry that, because you say in the program, like social mobility is now extremely rare and it's not even necessarily something that's desirable, right? I agree with that general thing about like, we're not looking for just individuals to work their way out of their class position. It's such a kind of degrading view of, of, yeah. of what should be going on. But do you worry that you could be used as like an image of, um, see, our, you know, our society can bring working class people in and let them tell their stories and all this kind of stuff, that you could become like an avatar for the middle class's preferred, preferred view of yeah. how you resolve class problems? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something I've been keenly aware of from the beginning. I mean, my friend's show in 2019 basically dealt with this and that's where I road tested uh, uh, based what, what, what became the book, the second book. I, I wanted to test our middle class audiences who uh, say they like my work because it's brutal and harrowing and unflinchingly honest. Are they going to be interested in me turning that brutality and that, fl uh, and that uh, unflinching honesty on them? Um, because that's what happens in book two. It's not a study of poverty. It's not a study of my abuse. It's a, it's a, an examination of, of, of um, my experience of moving up a few tax brackets, how my interests have changed, and some of the delusions uh, that I, I, I'm in danger of internalizing if I, if I don't stay close to the world that I come from. Um, and and so I'm, I'm very aware that as someone who has made a name for themselves, calling out aspects of the system and, 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 and advocating for more radical change, I've now become a kind of poster child for the enduring utility of the status quo by some 
So that's why sometimes I have to be maybe a wee bit more transparent than other people in my position would be about the support that I have had, um, not just in my early life when I was homeless and the different services and uh, all, the, all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, t- talking about the kind of gen- the money where your mouth, the kind of money where your mouth is generosity uh, of, of specific figures and individuals um, who, who, whose intervention in my life at different points, whether it's mentors or whether it's people in publishing, um, have, 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 have altered my life in a way that I don't think any amount of merit uh, or any amount of skill or any amount of, 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 of anger uh, would have put me in the position that I'm in now. Now that might come across like false humility, uh, but really what I'm saying is I am where I am partly because um, other people took a shining to me and decided to, to, to back me up and help me in more ways than just being nice to me vocally. And, 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 and that just doesn't happen for most people. It just doesn't happen. And that's that's the thing. So when I when I tell my story, I have to include all of it, and that's that's the reality. Mm. No, I mean it doesn't come across as false humility. I think it's I I think it's a, a tough it's a tough question to have to face. Like, are you going to become this kind of the middle class's acceptable face of the working class? Yeah. Um, and I suppose that's partly what in the olden days um, major institutions would have assisted with like big trade unions or communist parties like ensuring that the cater were kept in line <laughs> if you like do you know what I mean because I've seen there's you know there's left commentators that I won't name right um outside of Scotland that I used to like you know follow their work and their writings on class and then over the years, I've just watched them like systematically, like just slide into this like liberal milieu where basically they are uh, reproducing some of the worst myths around like the Brexit vote and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, th- I think it's tough. But like, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that by telling that that story in an honest way and being that having that transparency, that'll, do you know what I mean, that, that stands people in good stead, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the one of the one of the problems with class as well is that it creates, you know, class-specific social cultural experiences from which certain behaviours and attitudes arise. Not all of them are virtuous. Not all of them are helpful. You know, I think the only the only people that are harder on the working class than the ruling class is other working class people. Like when we are when we are coming up in our community, we regiment each other so strictly. Um, as a young man, as a young boy, you know, I, I was, uh, I was, I was in a jazz band. I was into music. I was into dance. I was into acting. I learned very quickly. You cannot be into these things. You know, the whole reason that I became a rapper was because it would allow me to be creative and artistic within the patina of aggression and bravado, which was necessary to grant you safe passage through the sort of community that I grew up in. And I just carried that with me. Um, so there are aspects that, that, that I'll be exploring in, in the book. And I have previously, to be fair, uh, where I'm, I'm not interested in this kind of class essentialism. I'm not interested in any kind of essentialism. I'm not interested in this idea if you're working class, um, you naturally are inclined to, to, to believe certain things. 
um, because I know just even from my own family, my granny was a lefty. She couldn't see past Tommy Sheridan. She was hardcore. She went to all the marches. She did all the stuff. My granda was an Irish immigrant racist, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who called Manny Rosie a bloody communist, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and a lot of my time in my childhood was spent with families who came up through the Orange Order, um, who were Mad Rangers fans, and they looked after me and they cared for me when I wasn't at home and when things were difficult. And they showed that they, they possessed values and principles that I think sometimes in discussions around class and party politics and stuff like that just gets lost. So where I, what I'm interested in is what are, the, what are the interests that arise out of a working class life and what do they come into conflict with at other places in society? Because, you know, trying to predict how working class people think or vote just based on the fact that they're working class, I've found to be quite futile. And, and the more I get invested in a certain idea, the more likely I am to piss working class people off should I ever actually encounter them in real life, which is something I think a lot of people on the left, you know, need to demonstrate capacity to do more going forward as we uh, come in from this wilderness that we seem to be in right now. I mean, so I wanted to just pick up on this idea that you were you mentioned in passing there about this idea of um, the working class virtue. Like, I, I mean, I've heard this loads of times on the left, or at least this kind of tone of like the kind of salt of the earth, gritty, <laughs> wholesome working class. Like, you, you know, the stereotype that, yeah. I, that I'm getting at, um, yeah. which is, I mean, it's incredibly uh, frustrating and insulting to, to listen to. Um, yeah. But like, I think that what it what it fails to recognize like all of that stuff about there's something inherently virtuous about the working class is that like for me what's important about class is like the working class is the agent of change like that is actually like how history pushes itself forward mm -hmm. like the working class has agency and ability to transform society um, on the basis of the fact that there's one strategic advantage which is sheer raw numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Raw numbers, like the 99%, like which was a slogan that was systematically dismantled by middle-class left-wing activists in Occupy, of course. But um, like, this is the thing that, that for me is important is this idea of like a transformation, the agents of change and like a history being moved forward through the process of class struggle. So I just like, in, in your book, like, do you look at the power of the organised working class? Because ultimately, yeah. what has to happen is that that means you have to set aside the fact that you don't like people or people don't like you yeah. in order to act in yeah. solidarity in a collective consciousness with other working class people for your collective interests. Absolutely. So you mentioned, like, the Irish immigrant who's a racist, the families in the Orange Order, da, 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 like actually like we don't have to like people to act alongside them yeah that that's that's that, that's um it's a it's it's a great point and obviously like i i do go into that I have a chapter have a chapter which basically i went to i went to watch prime minister's questions um 2019 i just wanted to go into the houses of parliament and just get a sense of it you know and get a sense of something that I had previously only seen on television. 
And so I went in there, I was in the press gallery. Um, and then I, I, when I came out, I started working on the chapter. This was all just before Brexit. And it was one of those days where the usual rules of engagement were suspended because Corbyn was meeting with Theresa May later that day to try and come to some sort of agreement about how we withdraw from the EU. So it was the only day really that I remember in that whole period where they were arguing about things like welfare and the labour market and stuff that, you know, traditional stuff that politicians would argue about. But when I started writing, when I started writing the chapter, it's, it, I realised what the chapter was about was, was how this institution was so removed from social reality and economic reality and that it had form in this regard and that Brexit was the latest expression of that low proximity to the population in terms of either prescribing economic solutions to the population or interpreting the social effects and cultural effects of those botched attempts. Um, and so it goes into, it goes into, I mean, I don't go into in this book a level of political and social and economic history that will satisfy most academics. But my book's not aimed at that. It's just about setting the scene. And so it's it's really, uh, you know, go into the, the history of, you know, people being hung, people being hung for fighting for things that are now taken for granted. And then the women's movement and the movements for racial equality, all of these things were resisted with violence. All of these things came with campaigns that said these people are mental. You know, these people are too radical. And then once those once those victories were achieved, those were then absorbed by this myth of the British liberal society, this myth that's used to justify how we behave all over the world, which is, well, look at all your rights here. This is a society worth preserving. And it's like, hang on, did you not try and kill all those people for trying to do those things? Did you not write into law that people weren't allowed to be taught about gayness in schools? So that you could protect the institution of family, did you not? Uh, you know, did, you, did were people not shot in the street about this? I mean, I seem to have a different recollection of what history entails in this country. And the problem you get is that a lot of a lot of people who then go and ascend in institutions. Part of the reason for their ascent is that they accept that version of history, so they don't understand they're allowed to go for a break, or they don't understand that they're allowed to be in a union and that that's significant. Uh, or that they only have to work a certain amount of hours a week, or they have rights in terms of all sorts of things. They don't understand it was it was working class people who fought for all those things for the reasons you describe. One, numbers, and two, being pushed into a place where they felt they had nothing to lose. Um, see, on that point of, um, you know, having no illusions and 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 the hang-ups that everyone in the mass of the population can have, whether that's being, you know, like an orange man or, or a racist or uh, a sexist or whatever. Um, I mean, how important do you think it is that people come to grips with that fundamental social reality? Because I think, I think that like large parts of the modern left are very alienated from that realization and what we were just talking about, you know, um, Women don't have the vote in this country because all of the suffragettes were really progressive, right? It was a sufficiently large movement that it included people who were scum. Uh, like, you, you know, you get all these arguments today about like, oh, don't put up a statue of that 
suffragette because she was an anti-Semite. Um, and, you know, I think in, some, in a lot of these cases, unsurprisingly, they're actually members, women members of the kind of ruling elite. Uh, and, you know, and famously, the movement split once women did have the vote because some of them, most of them voted Labour or Liberal and a lot of them started voting Tory uh, and things significantly to the right of the Tory party. But that is the mess of a mass movement. That is the mess of a massive population of people. I always think back to that time and you probably don't want to be reminded of all this shit, right? But we've all, we've all got this shit in our past. Um, do you remember you made a, 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 mu a, a music video? Yeah, that was dealing with domestic violence um, from the point of view of a man who was abusing his partner, who was a heavy drinker and all this kind of stuff, and it explored his psychology. And I remember you got summarily shot at dawn, uh, do you know what I mean, for, for, for creating this video. And, and, and I remember you got, um, I don't think people called it cancelled at the time. I think at the time they called it called out. Right, yeah. you were called out, right? Yeah. I remember you, you. I was a prototype in Scotland for yeah. this sort of yeah. thing. For this sort of thing, yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember you saying at the time, do you know, I wish I had been called out earlier mm -hmm. because as soon as you are, it loses its power. Mm. Like, which I think is a really interesting insight into that kind of uh, people, particularly on the kind of middle class left, try to control expression yeah. uh through that this kind of culture of saying you can go this far and then no further as yeah. soon as you breach that limit it just doesn't exist anymore yeah absolutely and you're forced and what, into a confrontation with reality what happened and it's interesting because what happened is that video was commissioned by the violence reduction unit i worked on it for months in that video you will find all the traces of of research that i've done into psychology, you know, disassociative language that, that abusive men use when talking about their own behaviour, how they're always ascribing blame externally, uh, the coercive control element, the overbearing surveillance, all of these things all, all, all present visually or within the narrative of this, this delusional and abusive personality. The truth is, the video came out, um, there was no real problem with the video. The video was retweeted by White Ribbon in Australia, right? The problem came when I published a supplementary article in STV, which I was writing for at the time, in which I included a sentence, which in hindsight um, wouldn't have got past an editor of considerable experience. But I wasn't working for an editor of considerable experience. This was a new uh, commentary section on STV and everyone, it was pretty much their first job. Right. Um, and, and, and the sentence alluded to relationships generally, dysfunctional relationships where there's poor communications. No one knows how to assert their emotional needs. No one knows how to um, extract themselves from the relationship if they think it's not uh, meeting their needs. You know, it's just emotionally unhealthy. But because the wider context was this discussion about gender based violence, then it was construed that what I was suggesting was that women in abusive relationships have might have to take responsibility for some of the abuse when actually i was taught i was i was talking about unhealthy relationships and hadn't made that clear and so then it just takes one tweet that i was victim blaming and then i'm fighting fires on all sides but what what made that worse and this is the real mess of of 
of social media. And at that time, I don't think we really understood how disruptive a technology it really is. It was actually because of comments that the guy who I, I, I brought in as the director of the film had made months prior. And then he was attacked by people from Thousand Flowers. And then they mistook a thing that he made in reference to battle rap as a rape threat. And then this was retweeted hundreds of times. Meanwhile, I've got a two-month-old child at home and I'm not able to sit on Twitter every minute of the day keeping up with all of this. And every attempt I have to explain what's happened is construed now through this lens that I'm an abusive personality. So I made a video upset explaining what I meant, but because I was visibly upset, this was written about in the paper as an angry video. Um, <laughs> and then I said, and then I, you know what? I just realized, I just realized I was like, that was when my view of what, what was coming down the line in terms of, of, of uh, culture war and identity and, and, and this kind of reification of postmodern ideas asserted as real in terms of how people conduct themselves. Um, I just knew this isn't going to impress a lot of people from working class backgrounds, because if someone like me who had researched the topic and engaged, you know, I met with women's groups, I met with people that was knowing that I was making this video. And when it came out, everyone fucking ran a mile. Everyone ran a mile. I performed this video at a school um, on on uh, 16 Days of Action, which is a festival which is specifically about this issue. And everyone ran a mile. You know, and, but the paradox of it was, and I'll just finish with this, but the paradox of it was, there came a point when I thought, am I just going to renounce my leftism? Because as soon as you jump on social media, as soon as you jump on Google to try and understand why this has happened to you, up comes, you know, that carousel of alt-right figures who at that time just seemed kind of playful and fun. And it was almost kind of masturbatory to just explore the taboo of hearing people talk about things in a way that they had never before. And uh, and then and it was actually because of radical working class feminists who could see, even though there was aspects of the video and aspects of how I had behaved that made it worse and that I had betrayed a certain ignorance that's probably specific to men, at the same time, they could see that's not me. The caricature that had been created for me wasn't me. And so they stuck with me and they approached me in an emotionally intelligent, compassionate way. And this is what brought me back to the left. Mm. And this is what brought me back to remembering what my politics were and that this was just a bump in the road that we were all going to experience at a different point. And actually, you know, this vision of identity politics as it occurs on social media and feminism as it occurs on social media is quite at odds with my experience of, of dealing with individuals and groups who advocate these uh, politics and real life in the community who actually share a lot of the concerns that you guys talk about a lot and concerns that I've had in the past. And it, it's just, it's, it's so easy to conflate social media behavior uh, with what's actually going on out there. Now there's a whole cottage industry of people talking about the left when what they mean is postmodernism on Facebook and, and, and the left is still scrambling with how to respond because we were so slow to distinguish ourselves from mm -hmm. that because we were so frightened of the, and the informal social pressure to adopt all these new precepts about what violence was and what racism really means and what privilege really means that we've just left it to, you know, unheard magazine 
to do it for us. And it's, uh, you know, now we see what the effects of that have been. Uh, I think Unheard published some good pieces. No, I know they do. They do. Some of them are mine. Some of them are mine. I'm trying to get I'm trying to get a grift on Unheard, you see. Uh, this is this is the other thing is like that that situation you're talking about about like your kind of proto cancellation see what i've noticed is like see even seeing those situations this is very telling that which is what is why i think it's more there is a problem with the left and not just like postmodernism on facebook is that even when you turn around and you say listen fucked it right did it wrong um, I need to, I need to like reflect on that. Whatever, it will never be good enough. Yeah. Because this is like, so we've got an article on the Connor website about the about what's called virtue hoarding. And it's this new book that, that's out, and it's like virtue hoarding is like it it works because it's currency. But if everyone suddenly becomes virtuous and agrees with you know your what certain like rules about like the way that things should be spoken about, then it loses its value. Right. So like virtue is continually hoarded, not spread. Right. So like you, th these groups who hoard virtue continue to act like they are the ones who are like excluded moral minorities, when actually a lot of the time they are the people who are reinforcing the status quo mm -hmm. and actually just silencing people who get who fuck things up. Right. Yeah. yeah but well, the, the thing is, I'm not. Ah, I, I would never claim to be have been silenced. I would, I, I, I challenge anyone to try and silence me when I want to speak. I mean, I could mute no. you right now. But... Aye, aye, <laughs> and I run on Twitter like silenced by hypocrite cat boy. <laughs> but I, th I think you know that the, the I'm always, and this is an aspect that never gets brought into political discussion. There's a real emotional immaturity at play here. There's a real core assumption. That, that the people who behave in this way are not currently thinking thoughts, harboring attitudes and engaging in behaviours that very soon will be deemed immoral or wrong or recontextualised as some kind of ism within the course of their lifetimes. It shows a real ineptitude, social, obtuse way of construing how progressive societies change and the ethical sands shift so quickly. So the key is not to, 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 to ride the wave of whatever is current and plant your flag in that. The key is to observe every trend and every wave as it arises and truly contend with it as I try to when I think about previous attitudes and behaviours and my life in relation to ethnic minorities, in relation to women, in relation to all sorts of different things the language that I used to think was appropriate. I mean, I'm the sort of person who spots that I was wrong before someone has to come and tell me I was wrong and compel me to apologise on social media. So you have to understand that that sort of behaviour has no purchase with me because when people start behaving like that, what they're broadcasting in high definition is the fact that they, they need to grow up. They need to get to know themselves. They need to become self-aware to understand that if their life consists of running around pointing the finger at other people, then one day they're going to find a few fingers pointing at them. And how are they going to deal with that? Because um, aside from all of this politics thing, it was just like where we go back to it at the, the, the start when David was saying, life is messy, 
humans are messy. We're always revising our personal narrative. We're always adding caveats to the story we tell ourselves. We're always making accommodations for our behavior that we won't grant to other people. And we always find allies with, with strange bedfellows when, when, when the sight of a common enemy comes into view. This is not the behavior of virtuous, all-knowing people. This is the behavior of deeply flawed, selfish, self-concerned, um, puny humans. And that is my message to the listeners <laughs> uh, of Contourcast. <laughs> as a wonderful way to to lead us out um thanks so much again for coming on the pod um i've really enjoyed the discussion it's been really thanks a lot um good luck with the last episode tonight Um, hope it's done well i expect to see you tweeting i was great i look forward to the uh to seeing the book as well um I hope I hope it. I, I hope I, f- I feel the. Uh, I have the piss ripped out of me by the end of it. You know, I hope I uh, accept that challenge. <laughs> well, I think that the the the, the uh, it's pretty comprehensive. I'll say that. You know, pretty <laughs> comprehensive. <laughs> Just on the subject of David Jameson, there's a whole chapter <laughs> on that. <laughs> his mustache. I think he is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, fellows, take it easy and uh, I'll catch up with you soon, all right? Take yeah. care. See you later. Bye. Bye.